this message inspires and encourages you. For more information, please contact Nexus Church. I've got a word that I'm excited to share with you tonight. And um, I just really hope it doesn't come across really harsh. Um, Hopefully by now you know me and you know that I'm a fairly nice person most of the time. Uh, But I, I just really... I don't want this word to come across harsh because it's something that God's working on my heart on at the same time as working on perhaps your heart, if that makes sense. And so tonight was a little bit of false advertising in one sense because I was going to be sharing about hearing the voice of God, which we will sort of get to. But the fact of the matter is, is that to hear the voice of God, 90% of the time, all you need to begin to do is read His word. And for me, 90% of the time, I hear God's voice when I read His Word because His Word is living and active and He wants to speak to us. So we could just end right there for some of us. If you're wondering what God wants to say, He's written 90% of it down. All right? Now there's all books about this. Um, Sacred Pathways was a great book on this. He identified nine different ways that God speaks to us. I think there's probably about 28 different ways He speaks to us. But for the most part, uh, read, read your Bible. He'll speak to you. Does that make sense? Cool. All right, let's finish up there. Um, but tonight I want to I want to go somewhere. I was struck by a passage this past week that it, it's one of those ones that you've heard and you've read a dozen times, but I heard it in a different translation this week, and it just completely struck me to my core. And I want to share it with you. And it's a little bit uh, not fully formed yet, but hopefully you'll be okay and hopefully the Holy Spirit will do all the heavy lifting like He always does. Um, years ago, when I got my driver's license, uh, I got my driver's license only a matter of weeks after my brother and it's one of the sad bits in my whole life is that my brother got his license before me. Now, it makes sense, he's two years older than me, but my brother was a terrible driver. <laughs> to the point, I remember when he got picked up for his driving lesson, and about to go and get that final test, and he's there in that driving instructor's car, and me and dad kind of wave him off, and he does a burnout out the front of the house. <laughs> Not a cool one, an unintentional dropping of the clutch, like, I turned to dad, and I said, dad, there's no way he's getting his license. Sure enough, he comes home and he's got it. So you should be concerned on the roads out there, giving it to anybody. I prided myself on being an excellent driver and then when I came to that driving test, I remember taking it up at Strathpine and um, we went this route that we'd never gone before, I'd never driven on and there was this city of a, of a thousand speed bumps. Never been in these back streets ever. And I remember driving on these speed bumps and I thought to myself, I don't quite know what to do here because I'm driving a manual car and if I don't put my clutch in a lot, I'll be kangarooing it over these speed bumps and certainly I will fail. And so I did what probably maybe you do now that you've got your license is I put my clutch in almost the entire ride. And I tell you what, we were riding over those speed bumps as smooth as silk. We're having a lovely time, great conversation, enjoyable company. I thought, I have nailed this. I thought, he's noticed something about my driving ability that I'm incredibly smooth over speed bumps. And, and I thought, this is great. We get back to the place and he's like, you failed. And I didn't just fail, I failed miserably. I had like 12 critical driving errors for clutch coasting. <laughs> Here I was thinking what he wanted was 
me to smooth out the ride, but what he wanted was me to drive the car safely. The fact of the matter is, is that when it comes to God, I think sometimes we're giving God things that maybe he's not actually asking. Or perhaps there's things he's asking that we're not actually giving him. And in our mind, we have, this is what God wants from me. And yet God's saying, I don't, I've never asked for that. Or perhaps it's the opposite. Perhaps he's asking for something, but you're not ready and willing to give it up. And when it comes to hearing the voice of God, I actually believe that we have to begin with our understanding of what God is like and and who He wants or what He wants from our lives rather than just beginning with what I think would be what He would like. And we wonder why He doesn't talk to us or we don't have a relationship with Him, we don't hear His voice on a regular basis. It's because perhaps, if I'm being honest, I'm giving Him things and He's like, Nathan, I'm glad you've brought that to me. I'm glad you are offering that part of your life. But what I really, really want from you is everything. All of who you are. So I read this story this past week in Exodus chapter 32, the story of the golden calf. And uh, not, not calf muscle, but it's an animal. Um, chapter 32 of Exodus. And I, I read it in this translation that really got to my core. Now, when the people saw that Moses had delayed, now something happened with Moses. A few chapters earlier in Exodus 24, God calls Moses up to the mountain. And in fact, on that mountain, you begin to see the presence of God, the glory of God begin to descend on the mountain, earthquakes and fire and smoke, and it looks as though the mountain was on fire, kind of similar to Mount Mordor. And you begin to see uh, this incredible presence of God. And it says very clearly in Exodus 24, after six days, God called Moses up to the top of the mountain. Not everybody, just Moses, after six days. It's an important detail that we catch that. After six days, Moses goes up there and he stayed up there for 40 days and 40 nights. Prior to this, God had already interacted with Moses on a regular basis. Prior to this, the Ten Commandments had been given in Exodus 19. And Moses is gone for 40 days and 40 nights. Chapter 32. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, notice that. When things delay, we tend to take matters into our own hands. I don't know if you've ever experienced that before. But when God isn't operating on your time schedule, you begin to take matters into your own hands. I'm talking to anybody tonight. Two of us who are being honest. Praise God for you. When we delay, we take things into our own hands. The people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, likely from Tiffany's, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Did anyone catch that? That was <laughs> Tiffany and Co. Oh, sorry. Then all the people... <laughs> I like what you're doing over there, Tim. Is uh, You're trying to roll with my humour. Then all the people threw off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and noticed Aaron fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. You notice what's happening in this passage is because of the delay, they wanted a God that they could have in front of them, a God that they could control. So the next day they rose early and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Amazing, this God really loved to party. 
And the people sat down to eat, which is good, COVID safe. They sat down to eat and to drink and they rose up to play. Now the version I'm reading is they rose up to play. Yours might say they rose up to engage in revelry. I think you understand that the original language, when they said they rose up to play, they were not talking about play. The little kids aren't in the room. They weren't playing. They were doing other things. Do I need to elaborate? Have we got this? I don't feel like you're following. I will elaborate and it will not be awkward. I'm prepared to elaborate on playing, but I will refrain. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped and have sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me be alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I'll make you a great nation. And Moses pleads with the Lord five times and the Lord's anger surpasses the people. And then it winds the clock a little bit further forward, two chapters later, when the Lord would pass by Moses, he says, come to me and remain there and I'll give you stone tablets with the law and the commandments. And then it says this, as the Lord began to pass by, it says, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And then it says this, verse 5, the Lord descended on the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Such an interesting passage, and I've never read it like this before, but when you read it in that translation, something interesting is taking place. For the longest time, I thought that the molten calf actually represented a different God. Perhaps it was some kind of quasi-version of an Egyptian God that the people had worshipped in Egypt and they'd been corrupted by them. For the longest time, I thought that the people were sick of being delayed by Moses and so they made a decision that we will make up a different God. But that's not what the text says. In fact, in the original language, when they made the molten calf, they actually said something. Aaron said this in the original language, this is Yahweh. This molten calf is Yahweh, the covenant name of God. For the longest time, I thought that the golden calf represented a replacement or a counter God to God, but actually the original language says this, that they made this molten calf and they actually said, here he is. Here is Yahweh. Here is God. And as I began to ponder this, it kind of makes me think that perhaps in our lives, maybe the reason why we don't hear so much from God and why we wish we heard more is not because we follow other gods, not because we've got other things in our lives, though that may be the case. I think sometimes we may unknowingly be worshipping a truncated, shrunk down, muted version of the God we think we're serving. Every now and then, I think maybe we have an idea that the God that we love and serve, that we can reduce down to something that we can control, that we can manage. 
and we wonder why that God doesn't speak to us. I told you I'd be a little bit harsh this, this evening, but hopefully you're okay. The fact of the matter is, is that they were sick of the delay and they wanted something that they could actually participate with, that they could set the rules with. Do you notice something amazing about this? Is as this molten calf was produced, very instantly, Aaron set brand new rules for worshipping that this golden calf required. Meanwhile, on top of the mountain, as Moses is engaging with God, God is downloading to Moses, here is how you worship me. This is what I want you to do. And yet they develop their own little version of what it means to worship God. It just so happens that the molten calf version of God was happy for all kinds of crazy partying, drunkenness and weird stuff going on. And this God was completely fine with it. Because when you shape a God into your own image, it just so happens that this God is super happy with everything you do. All of a sudden, this God is only ever patting you on the back. Always saying, hey, you're awesome. Don't ever change. You be you. I would never ask you to do anything like that. It's amazing how the shrunk down, miniaturized, muted version of God became incredibly popular with the people. Are you with me tonight? Could it be that we live in a world that really prefers the golden calf, tame, miniaturized version? Not because we think we're worshipping other gods, but this God I can control. This God has amazingly few rules to follow. This God doesn't actually ask anything on me, of me. This God doesn't even ask me to give anything up. This God basically says, you like to party? Turns out, this God loves it too. And he'll never ask anything more from you. I think you catch my drift tonight. The reason why we often have a muted God, a God that doesn't speak to us, is because we've taken the scary version of God that maybe might ask a little bit more of me and we've reduced him down to one that we can manage. Remember Aslan? C.S. Lewis's character in Narnia, they used to say about Aslan, the picture of Jesus, he's a very good lion, but he's not a tame lion. You see, there's a God on the mountain talking to Moses and that God is scary. There's earthquakes, there's fire, there's lightning, there's all kinds of things to the point that people are saying, Moses, we don't want to go see God. You go and have a chat to him and you tell us what he says about us. And so then they reduce this one down to this one that can be managed. Now let me just press this a little bit deeper and certainly it's for nobody here, but maybe it's for someone out there. But the fact of the matter is, the reason I know that we are, or I am, I'll just speak personally for a moment, the reason I know I am in relationship with God is because he speaks to me. But sometimes he asks me to do things that I perhaps don't want to do. Do you know how I know that I'm in a marriage? <laughs> because I have a wife that always only agrees with me and always tells me that I'm right and thinks that everything I do is perfect. That's how I know I'm in a real marriage. It's how you know you're in a real relationship when someone doesn't agree with you all the time, but you know they love you. Can I ask you tonight, have you got a shrunk down version of God? And perhaps there's things he's asking of you, but you 
keep on turning the volume down when he does that? Have you got a version of God that seems to only ever affirm the things that you believe? Can I be honest with you? Sometimes our version of God is just a slightly larger version of ourselves. He's just like me. He's skinny and white and loves sport. This is a great God. Can I tell you, God is not just a larger version of who I am. God is something far more than that. And you have to allow Him to be God, the untamed one, the one who is a little bit scary, the one who sometimes is a little bit fiery, the one who is full of loving kindness and compassion and forgiveness, by the way, but the God who I cannot control and shape into my image. And I wonder if sometimes, because we keep on uh, going to the smaller version, we miss out on hearing what God actually wants to say to us. So I got just a handful of things and maybe this applies for you, but how do you know if you've got a shrunk down version of God? Number one is this, this God always agrees with me and never challenges me. Then perhaps you've got a shrunk down, muted version of God. Always agrees with you and never ever challenges you. That is almost the version of the grandfather God. And I say this all the time, but grandparents, they just want to be liked by their grandkids. They have no desire to raise them right. They just want to be liked by them. They will never say no, ever. But we carry a grandfather version of God around where he only ever agrees with me and only ever gives me everything I want. So I ask you this question. When's the last time God really, really challenged you on something? And what did you do about it? Because I reckon maybe we'll have more of a dialogue and relationship with God when we actually begin to respond to the last thing he challenged us with. Sometimes we want to keep on advancing and he's like, We've just got to go, just don't go past go yet. I've just asked you and asked you and pleaded to lay it down. I know it's hard to lay it down, but I've got far better things for you. And within that challenge, his voice is ringing clear. Number two, God is kept in a category on the peripheral, not at the center of my life. You see, we have all these categories in our lives. We have work, study, relationships, our identity, uh, our sexuality, our finances. We have all of these categories. And here's how you know you've got a shrunk down version of God, that He is just another category in your life. That He is just another category relating to the 28 other categories in our lives rather than being at the center of everything. And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe in the gamut of your life, you say, I know I need a spiritual category. And so God is there. Can I tell you, if you've got Him just there, you've got a shrunk down version. He has to be at the center because when he's at the center, he shapes every other category of your life. And maybe you've just put him in that box. Number three, you're okay? All right, it's going to get even more harsh. We only have a surface view of sin and we don't realize that perhaps there is a deeper issue at play. It's kind of interesting, you hear Aaron, Moses comes over to him in verse 21, and he said to Aaron, hey, how did you mess this up so bad? He goes, what does these people do to you that led them into such great sin? Verse 22, Aaron talking, do not be angry, my Lord, you know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us, as for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewellery, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire 
and out came this calf. Is there any parent out there? I don't know how it happened. But yes, I've been playing the Xbox for three hours. But it just happened. It literally, this is where it all begins, isn't it? Firstly, this is how you know you've got a shrunk down version of God. Everybody else is the problem. As long as my issues are slightly less than everybody else's, then I'm good to go. You know how prone everybody else is to evil. And the next one is sin always appears to be an accident, yet there is no accident. In fact, James would say that each person led away by sin is enticed and enticed and there is steps and processes. I love this. We took off our rings, we threw it in and bam, out came this calf. That's some kind of magic we need to be able to harness. In fact, 20 verses earlier, you see Aaron getting the rings and chipping away. The detail is there with a graving tool. It wasn't that sin was an accidental thing that he led the people into. I stuck it in the fire, came out. Next thing you know, we're all getting crazy, worshipping the calf. I don't know how it happened. How many times do we identify our sin that way? Look, I just don't know even how it happened. It was an accident. I just went to this thing and I went there by accident. I don't know even how I got there. The car drove me there. I was there. Someone suggested something and I said, perhaps maybe that might be okay. And the next thing I know, worshipping a molten calf. (laughs) Each person led away, bit by bit, because here's the thing. We sometimes think that sin in our life is just a couple of little things that we get wrong, but I can tell you right now, it's a far deeper issue. But I can tell you right now, when you realise how deep that issue is, you realise how deep His love is for you. The turning points I've experienced in my life has been when God has shown me the gravity of my sin, and in so doing, He's shown me the weight of His love. If you only ever have a surface view of sin, you'll always be pointing it out in others. You'll always treat sin as an accident rather than a far deeper issue that God wants to redeem. You know, when the enemy comes to accuse you of never being good enough, you need to always remind him that you you are far worse than he thought, but you are far more loved than you could ever possibly imagine. And when we begin to do that, we begin to go beyond this calf version and we begin to see God in his fullness. Team, you can come and join me and then we'll close. Actually, just hold it for a second there. Just, just hold it. <laughs> Sorry. I just don't want people to be distracted just yet. And I know how distracted I am when you guys get up because I look at all the buttons over here. At this point, I've been pretty brutal. But I trust by the Holy Spirit that God is already starting to challenge us. Maybe there's things in your life that you're saying... I haven't allowed God to touch that part of my life. Or maybe tonight you're saying this, I know God is challenging me on that and I just can't bring myself to do it. I'm always fascinated when people say lines like, I love Jesus, I love and follow the teachings of Jesus, I just don't like the church or I just don't like the people. I'm fascinated by this. Because when I look at the life of Jesus and his actual teachings, sometimes he says some things that are pretty harsh. Kind of like Matthew 10, I haven't come to bring peace but a sword. (laughs) Did you like that part of the teaching? (laughs) Whoops. Are you catching my drift? He says, unless you lay your life down for me and take up your cross and follow me daily, you're not worthy of following me. Do you like that bit? Like, they're the bits that no one's putting on a T-shirt. 
What about if anyone puts their hand to the plough and looks back? They're not worthy of being my disciple and my follower. What about the people that he said to, to go and sin no more? I'm not trying to be harsh with you tonight, but Jesus has a powerful mix of loving kindness and acceptance, yet demanding us to change. And we don't like that. Do you know why? Because we like the shrunk down version of Jesus, the, the one that we can control. And so as we wind the clock forward and we begin to look at Jesus, the exact representation of the Father that Hebrews would say, Jesus himself would say, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He begins to touch on areas of our lives and begins to call us to change. You see Jesus radically accepting the people on the out and the fringes, but actually asking them to change and transform. He calls Zacchaeus down from the tree and says, you're a son of Abraham. And in that moment, he hands half of his possessions away. Why are people doing that when they encounter the love of God? Because they're taking him as the full version and allowing him to truly challenge them deeply. And so Jesus goes up another mountain, perhaps hundreds of years later, just like Moses went up on after six days. It says in both Matthew, Mark and Luke that after six days, Jesus took his disciples up to the top of the mountain. And you know what begins to happen on the top of the mountain? It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. And after six days, James and John, the brother of James, led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as Omo brightness as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Notice Moses reappears here. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while they were still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Time and again, Isaiah and now Isaiah chapter 6, Peter, when he encounters Jesus, every time people encounter Jesus for who he really is, it's a little bit terrifying, but it's a whole lot of loving. And tonight as we draw to a close, now team, you may join me. It's important you realize something. Maybe you need a, an honest moment, you need to ask God, have I been worshipping a miniature, truncated, muted version of you? Where I've left out the bits that I don't like. Where I leave out the bits that I find disturbing or or bits that I can't control. Maybe there is something he's been challenging you on, something you, he's been speaking to you about time and time again, and you keep on trying to press the mute button, but you know tonight, you know exactly what it is. Perhaps you've been handing parts of your life over, but you know at the end of the day, you still control all the categories. God, I, I trust you with this, but I deal with the relationship bit. That's me. I, I trust you with this, but I, I work on that side of it. That's me. Maybe you need to let him get to the center of all of that. But maybe you know in your heart of hearts that you haven't wanted to encounter God really for who He is because maybe it's terrifying. Maybe you're scared that He might ask you to do something. Beck shares her story a lot. She always thought that she'd have to be a missionary and she never wanted to do that. 
And then you realize that when you encounter God, just like these disciples on the mountain, it's a terrifying experience. Yet it's incredibly loving. As he says, do not be afraid. I am with you. It's almost like tonight and in our coming weeks and months, I want us to increase our desire for more of the presence of God. And the only way to do that is it can never come from me asking you to do it. It can never come from me asking you to open the door of your heart. The door opens from the inside out. And you begin to cross a line and you begin to say lines like this, God, I'm sick of containing you to that part of my life. I'm sick of controlling who you are in my life. I open the door of my life completely and wholly. And if it's a little bit terrifying, I'm okay with it because just like those three on the mountaintop, I know that you are with me and that your love is near to me standing right beside me. And perhaps tonight you know, before we begin to sing this song, that you need to open the door of your heart to do just that.